Spaniards are must talk. Walk on the road. Hmm? Walk right side, safe. Walk left side, safe. Walk middle, sooner or later, get the squish, just like grip. Here, karate, same thing. Either you karate do yes, or karate do no. You karate do guess so, just like grip. Understand? Yeah, I understand. Now ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Yes. Let's make sacred pact. I promise teach karate, that to my part. You promise learn. I say you do, no question, that to your part. Deal? Steal. Yes. First wash all the car, then wax. Wax. But what do I have to wash all the car? Remember, dear. No question. Yeah, but I... Right. Wax on, right hand. Wax off, left hand. Wax on, wax off. Welcome to When We Were Young, the podcast that strikes first, strikes hard, and offers no mercy. I'm Becky, and I'm the podcast host most likely to sweep the leg. I'm Seth, the host most likely to never have danced in a shower before. I'm Chris, the podcast host most likely to convince you that the most valuable life lessons you could ever learn can only be passed along as you thoroughly clean his house. (laughs) And I'm Chelsea, the guest podcast host most likely to catch a fly with a pair of chopsticks. On today's episode, we are headed to the San Fernando Valley, which is really just right over the hill from where we are right now, to revisit the 1984 hit movie The Karate Kid, which may have been the reason you definitely took a karate class if you were a child in the mid to late 80s. Previous sports-related movies we've covered on When We Are Young include A League of Their Own, Ladybugs during our Teen Heartthrobs episode, and I think that's it. Did I miss any guys? Uh, not that I can recall. I mean, they have featured various athletics, like the, the Schwarzenegger episode was very athletic, pumping iron, if, if you count that as a sport. Oh, okay. Well, I don't, but... <laughs> it, is Jerry Maguire a sports movie-ish? Not really, but kind of... Well, well, he's not the one doing the athleticism in it, so I feel like it doesn't count. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, I think it counts. You do? <laughs> yeah. I think uh, there's a lot of sports in it, and, and you know, you have to be kind of into what's going on, you know, sports-wise, so I'd, I'd classify it as a sports movie. I think that's an interesting debate, is what makes how much sports needs to be in the movie to be a sports movie. <laughs> that's like, what's a Christmas movie? What counts as a Christmas movie? <laughs> yeah. How much, how much Christmas has to be in it. <laughs> Cuba Gooding Jr. won Oscar for being the sports guy, so I feel like people were invested in the sports because, like, so it's a football movie. Uh, yeah, 
all right. Well, it's all things to all people. (laughs) All right. Well, I think this shows that we're indoor kids. (laughs) (laughs) And apparently sports movies do not come top of mind when it comes to picking movies to revisit on this podcast. But today we're doing Karate Kid, and that, I think, counts as a sports movie. Well, unless they have Madonna in them or a boy dressing up in drag. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty much our criteria for sports movies. (laughs) And also, I don't know if Karate Kid is a sports movie. Karate is a sport. (laughs) Well, Becky, we're talking about arts here. Martial arts. Oh, It's a sport. (laughs) (laughs) I am so excited for today's episode, not because we're finally doing another sports movie, because I really couldn't care less about that, but because my sister is here. Meet Chelsea. Yay! Hi, Chelsea. Hi! Thanks for having me. Hi, I'm a big fan, so thank you. (laughs) Of your sister or of the podcast? (laughs) Yeah, I really hope you're not just a fan of your sister here. Of both, of both, honestly. (laughs) Okay, okay, good. That's fair, that's fair. This podcast came up because I was visiting Chelsea a few months ago, and for some reason, it came up that I've never seen The Karate Kid. And she was just like, you are joking me. We're watching it tonight. <laughs> and we did. And uh, I had no idea that this was a movie that you like so much. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was a shock to me that you didn't know that I was obsessed with it. I feel like, in a way, we're kind of part of different generations. So me being a full 80s kid, it's kind of um, in my blood to like this movie. But uh, but I'm glad you sat down and watched it with me. I did. And then I rewatched it for this podcast. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's how that came to be. And we, you know, we haven't done Karate Kid. And it's definitely a movie that should be on this podcast. So I'm very glad that we have Chelsea here to talk about it with us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to learn what it was about this movie that I'm sure we'll get into later, but um, uh, that drew you to this movie and kind of what the experience of it was like. You know, we were coming to it much later after it came out, um, some of us decades later, but um, even if we saw it when we were young, it was obviously after it came out because it came out when we were like zero or one years old, something like that. We need an eyewitness to the actual history of the crowd. Again. Glad to provide um, provide that for you, me being much older. <laughs> you're not that much older as a senior citizen we really love having your voice here we try to give a platform to people of your age listen here young people and i will tell you the story of the karate kid and while you're here we'd also love your take on the kennedy assassination (laughs) we're getting to the bottom of everything tonight Chris, did you have a question that you were going to bring up? So as I was thinking about the themes of this movie, the thing that really jumps out to me is that this is kind of the ultimate movie about a mentor figure. So because this is one of the ultimate mentor figure movies, I wanted to ask you guys, did you have a mentor figure when you were young or where or who did you learn from beyond, you know, just obviously school? I did have some mentors growing up, especially in high school. And I feel like, Beck, you might say the same thing with our drama teacher, Sal. Hmm. You know, it it does seem kind of familiar where we had this passion and we needed someone to kind of help us and tell us what was what in life with what we loved, which was theater, not karate. (laughs) But I didn't have someone like Mr. Miyagi in my life who would give me birthday presents and a car. (laughs) 
I think that's called a sugar daddy, not a mentor. (laughs) Mr. Miyagi was no sugar daddy. (laughs) It does seem sort of familiar in that sense. And and other acting teachers that I had, too, in community theater. But other than that, I, I, I didn't have a mentor the way Daniel's son did. Yeah, I mean, me and Chelsea had the same theater director in high school, despite we were five years difference in high school. I mean, he's still there. He's still teaching drama. Now that you say that, like, definitely he was somebody who taught us all about one of our passions that we had. Like, you know, we learned Greek theater and we learned Shakespeare and musicals and and things like that from Sal. (laughs) It's one of those people that like you remember them so well as a teacher you'll never forget. Yeah. I think he follows me on Facebook. I follow him, you know, like we still like are are on social media connected and he still like, you know, remembers us. And I think that's something that's just great about having that relationship with a teacher is you know that you really meant something while they were your teacher, not only to you, but to them. But I feel like in the wave, like Mr. Miyagi, I never had anybody in that sense. I don't know, Chelsea, did you show me the ropes? Thanks. <laughs> Was I your Mr. Miyagi? <laughs> if so, I'm I'm honored. <laughs> <laughs> and if not, she is dishonored. <laughs> I don't yeah, I don't think we have that kind of relationship. <laughs> um, I never made you wax the floor. <laughs> I'm sure you would have. <laughs> I was growing up. Yeah, there's still time. There's still time. The night is young. And I believe Becky's still waiting for her car too. Yeah. Where's my car? I think I didn't have an actual mentor relationship until I was an adult. And I met this woman named Cater at one of my jobs. And we weren't even really working together so much. She was like the VP of, I don't know, some fancy term on this TV show. And I was social media, but she just remembered me. And we always like, you know, said pleasantries to each other and got to know each other. And then she hired me to be her assistant when she got another job. And it was like three and a half years where I actually felt like I finally had somebody who was really teaching me about the industry, about how to treat, you know, not just employees, but like people in in general. And I feel like I learned so much from this person and that I could really tell that she really cared for me and really wanted me to like learn from her. And I haven't worked for her in a few years, but we're still like close enough that like I'll send her holiday cards and, you know, she had a job in mind for me. So she texted me and said like, how's everything? And it was the only time in my life I've really had that with like somebody who I felt like a very intimate relationship where I was learning a lot from them. So that never happened to me as a kid, but I'm glad it happened to me at all because I didn't really think that was a thing that would happen at all until in the last few years. That's awesome. I'm so glad you had that. Yeah. This same question kind of came up for me, Chris, when I was watching Karate Kid. So I'm very glad you asked it. I had countless mentor figures because it was instilled in me from a very young age. And I always had such a curiosity to learn as much as I could about the world, about other people, and especially about what grownups were like and what it was like to be an adult and what challenges adults faced. So mentorship was kind of a value and a principle I held for myself, even from a super young age. I had a lot of mentor figures in school and in 
in my youth, I would say like my my piano teacher, Miss Carol, was very much a mentor figure for me. I just had so many teachers, but one of the ones who I think I've talked about on here before was Mrs. Chance, who was the theater director at my elementary school that I went to for like from kindergarten through eighth grade. And basically every year and like also during summer at the summer camp, I would do all kinds of plays. And it was because of her that I really got interested in the theater and also weirdly enough in like sound mixing and sound engineering because I got really fascinated in the soundboard and like the light board and learned how to use those and ended up like doing the lighting and doing sound for a lot of the student productions. Um, in high school, my debate coach, Mr. Malice, was definitely a mentor figure for me in a lot of ways. Um, but again, it's I, I kind of always tried to seek out mentorship from the adults in my life and from the people who were my age, who I kind of understood had seen more shit than I had and who had gone through maybe similar challenges or challenges, or maybe had had challenges or difficulties that I hadn't faced. And I always, and for all my life have really saw the value in trying to identify those people and try to understand their experiences and learn everything I can, even if it's not about something that might face me directly, you know, how anyone tries to approach a problem they have can almost always give you some direction as far as how you can face challenges, or sometimes it can give you direction on how not to solve various challenges. Well, I guess I should have done more drama because it sounds like that's where all the mentors are. (laughs) (laughs) I did have a couple of teachers who were really passionate about writing and literature, and I was drawn to their enthusiasm. I was encouraged to enter some writing contests uh, when I was pretty young in elementary school. So I think teachers took an interest in me as a writer. So in the basis sense, maybe that's kind of like the beginning of mentorship, of being recognized, you know, by someone as having a particular talent and something that needs to be nurtured. But I don't really feel like any of them kind of took on that role more than being a teacher because like I think part of what separates like being a teacher and a mentor is that there's a sense of it being like more one-on-one or not necessarily one-on-one it could be like maybe a small group but I feel like there has to be something like a little extra and personal and maybe like time outside of like the general classroom but anyway, I don't feel like I had like a, an actual mentor in that sense, which is something that I, I think I would have, you know, really, really liked, especially at that time as someone who didn't know a lot of other people my age who were like really into writing and into film and, and stuff like that. So when I think about what a mentor would have been to me, what I actually think about is the authors that I read a lot. Mm. Because reading certain authors, you get a sense of their worldview and what's important to them. So I feel like the closest thing I had to that was actually like people who I never really met. Many of them were dead (laughs) before I was born. Specifically like the Oz books as, as one example. It was Oz is like a utopia, you know? So you really get a sense of what the author L. Frank Baum like idealized. And it was a place where they didn't have money, where they had a lot of young women as rulers or women, powerful women as witches. You know, it was really challenging kind of power structures that exist in our real world, which were, especially at the time, like very dominated by white men with money. And the books also promoted 
promoted like a sense of adventure, originality. They were always about like someone going on a journey and then picking up a bunch of like stray weirdos and bringing them, you know, to the big city, which I feel like that kind of tone and the tone that he had in the books was very like talking directly directly to the reader a lot of time too. So yeah, I did feel like I kind of almost had a mentor relationship with these authors and that they were sort of the voices that were guiding me toward pursuing my own like interest in writing and creativity. I love that. Like literally from the first part of what you were talking about in terms of like teachers, I thought of like three more teachers <laughs> who I could name. And then like when, as soon as you started talking about like the Oz books, like that reminds me of like so many, especially the authors I read in that kind of period between you know like fourth grade-ish to eighth grade-ish or so um and yeah in, in the exact same way that you did like i feel like i learned so much from those people who i've never had a chance of meeting because they were literally gone or at least you know like the the internet wasn't around and they weren't reachable then in the way that they could be now um, but yeah, I love that, Chris. And I do feel like all those people you describe uh, are valid mentor figures. Yeah, that's an interesting take. I didn't think about the authors that I I loved growing up or even, you know, in a sense, what one book I really loved was Catcher in the Rye and, and Holden Caulfield. And and I kind of just identified with him. So I that's a interesting way of putting it that some character or even, you know, an author can influence you and, and be this silent mentor. Yeah, that's another book that like it feels like it's speaking directly to you. You know, like the voice is so specific that, yeah, I can definitely see how that would feel like a relationship that you're having with the person and not just, you know, something that you're reading, which is exactly how I felt about the stuff I was reading, too. Chelsea, I had no idea you liked that book either. I feel like I don't know anything about you. (laughs) (laughs) This whole sister thing is a ruse, isn't it? What do we do when we get together? I know now we talk about our kids, but what did we do before? We talk about movies we see. We talk about who's going to win an Oscar or not. We talk about Britney. Yeah, we we actually talk a lot about entertainment. Uh, more, yeah, more movies and music. But we should talk about books more. I think. <laughs> I just read. The novelization of Britney's Instagram. So, you should be Chelsea, I'll talk about books with you. Wait, is that a is that a real thing or? Okay, I'm kind of disappointed that it's not a real thing. I'm surprised for one. Well, let's get on that. Let's let's turn it into a, a nonfiction book, and I think it's going to sell pretty well now. I think so. All right, what are we talking about again? <laughs> Hey, good morning, Mr. Miyagi. Oh, good morning, Daniel. Sir. How you feel this morning? A little slow, really. Uh, yeah. You uh, know how to drive? Uh, yeah, yeah, I do, really. No, no, I'm not, I'm not very good at it, Mr. Miyagi. <laughs> Me neither. Well, I really don't have a license. Me neither. All right, I guess it's okay then. All right, guys, The Karate Kid. The Karate Kid was directed by John G. Avildsen, who is the same director as Rocky. He also did all three Karate Kid films. It was written by Robert Mark Kamen, who also wrote Gladiator, The Fifth Element, and The Taken movies. Very strange collection. Very strange filmography. Interesting. Uh, It stars Ralph Macchio, Pat Morita, Elizabeth Shue, and William Zabka. 
It was released June 22nd, 1984. The budget was $8 million. The box office was $130 million. It was a hit. And it had one Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actor for Pat Morita. The plot of The Karate Kid is teenager Daniel moves from New Jersey to Los Angeles, specifically the Valley, with his mom. He ends up falling for a girl whose ex-Johnny is a big deal at the Cobra Kai Dojo and makes his life a living hell. Daniel befriends his apartment's super, the eccentric but paternalistic Mr. Miyagi, who teaches him karate so he can challenge Johnny at the local karate tournament. The movie has 89% on Rotten Tomatoes. When the film was released, it received mostly positive reviews. Roger Ebert at the time gave it four stars and called it one of 1984's best movies. He wrote, I didn't want to see this movie, but once he did, he realized it was an exciting, sweet-tempered, heartwarming story with one of the most interesting friendships in a long time. So The Karate Kid is actually semi-autobiographical. It's based off the life of the screenwriter Robert Mark Kamen. You remember Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? That happened to that guy. At 17, he was beaten up by a gang of bullies at the World's Fair. He began to study martial arts in order to defend himself. He was unhappy with his first teacher who taught martial arts as a tool for violence and revenge. So he moved on to study with another karate teacher, a Japanese man who did not speak English, but he had been a student of somebody named Chojun Miyagi. So there's a lot there that still was in the movie. At the same time, the producer Jerry Weintraub had optioned a news article about a young kid of a single mother who earned a black belt to defend himself. Both stories came together. Even though it's optioned from somebody else's life, it's also the screenwriter's life put together. That became The Karate Kid. This is a movie that I would have never thought actually happened to somebody (laughs) no me neither it feels so like high concept of like oh we yes like karate is cool we need to have a a movie about karate let's call it karate kid and it'll be Mm -hmm. about a kid who learns karate it feels like it was kind of baked up not that the movie necessarily feels like that but the idea for the movie feels like that yeah it feels definitely like karate is sweeping the nation let's make a movie about that Karate really was sweeping the nation then, and so that probably is why he, I I don't know. Well, I guess, how many decades was karate a thing for? I was actually trying to find this information, like what came first, Karate Kid or the trend of karate? As a semi-child of the 80s, a child of the mid-80s onward, I would confidently say that the karate craze that swept America was very much resulting from the success of the Karate Kid franchise. I don't know about anyone else on this podcast, but I, Seth Pearson, known non-participatee in most (laughs) sports... (laughs) I was swept up in the karate craze. I went to at least three different dojos. At least, like, it was especially huge in the South, or at least it definitely was huge in the South, you know, throughout the 80s and 90s when I was growing up there. I was born and raised in New Orleans. I'm sure it was different, you know, probably even in other parts of the city compared to where I was. But where I was growing up in New Orleans, it was like all Taekwondo. At least in my, like, part of town, Taekwondo was the huge thing. There were, I I would say, at least 20 different taekwondo businesses which is kind of crazy to think of like that's more karate dojos than there are like 24-hour fitness gyms 
Well, I totally remember being in elementary school and so many of the boys, none of the girls, but so many of the boys like had to get in there like, what are they called? The the outfit? Gi. A gi to go to karate after school. I remember that so much. And it was like every other boy <laughs> like had karate practice. Yeah. Unfortunate to say that was also my experience too, in the sense that it was very much a gendered sport, at least in my experience, like during the 80s and 90s. It. I know that that changed later on. You know, it's kind of a shame that it wasn't a bit more open in that sense, or at least that, you know, there wasn't more like crossover appeal. Do you think that was purely because of the Karate Kid or was it not happening before? Because even to this day, and I think um, you were going to bring this up back, but that um, even to this day, I'd say so many kids are still taking karate, including my daughter, who had a little stint in um, in a beginner karate class. Um, it's just something, it seems like a rite of passage these days that, that I'd say like half the kids I know are signed up for karate um, and, and, you know, end up either going on and getting their whatever belt or just kind of doing it for a little while. But it's just seems like something that so many kids do these days. So I wonder if that was happening before the Karate Kid. I don't think it was. It was. (laughs) (laughs) Chris knows. (laughs) If it was, I don't think it was happening nearly to the same extent. Because I feel like Karate Kid represents a kind of accessibility in an American sense, like an accessibility of karate and like the culture of it. But Chris, I'm sure you did more homework than any of us did. So please. <laughs> well, I mean, I did it right now, like while we were talking. So it's not like I came with a big tome of the history of karate in the United States. You came here to crane kick us all in the face. I get it. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, karate is already an established thing. It's not really something that needs introduction in the movie. There's already a bunch of kids doing it. So I think that is kind of how it was happening. I mean, it basically was like a post-World War II thing where it first started being a thing in the U.S., but then in the 60s and 70s, it became a lot more popular here. So I think by the 80s, it was big enough, you know, that it felt like, oh, we need to do a movie about this. This is a great idea. But I also think that the success of the movie made it something that was even more ubiquitous by the time we were kids. And I also took like one round of karate lessons that I had actually completely (laughs) forgotten gotten and so you guys started talking about it (laughs) yeah it was just something that like you try and I was like okay cool like I I didn't feel a need to go on with it further but yeah it was just something that was there like as an option of of different things you can try when you're a kid and I did that and I think a lot of kids did too and it's interesting Chelsea that it's still going on because I I had no idea I thought it might have died down a little bit but it's cool kind of to hear that it it persisted on so much because it was such a ubiquitous thing um, when we were growing up yeah Chelsea, would you say that the classes are equal in terms of gender or maybe three-fourths boys? Or Because I, I feel like I don't I, – I can think I can remember one girl I went to school with when I was younger that did karate and no other girls. So I'm kind of curious if it's kind of leveled out. Unfortunately, I wouldn't even say from what I saw, the little bit I saw with my daughter's class, and it was just ages like four to six, um, It there were only – there was about like – 20 kids in the class and there were only about three girls my Mm. daughter Mm -hmm. Evie being one of them 
Um, so I don't really know. I don't get it. The The instructor, the sensei, was a girl, which was really cool. Mm-hmm. She actually switched off with a guy every other week. But I thought that was really cool that they had a girl sensei. But unfortunately, I thought I would see more girls doing it, and I, I didn't. So I wonder if that was just the class I saw or if it's just kind of how it is still these days, which is really weird because so many things have changed. So I don't know why that is. I mean, I don't know. I've, I've heard pretty dismal things about just the overall statistics for most sports. So, I mean, it's like, it's definitely discouraging, but it kind of doesn't surprise me. Yeah. Yeah. And I do feel like there's still, again, like, especially just talking in the American cultural context, I do think there's something that is often more macho and more male coded about the way that martial arts is represented and, you know, how it's characterized in, especially in American movies. Yeah. Yeah. Sadly, I think that's true with, with, um, you know, just gender roles and in general, I don't think sadly have changed that drastically from the 80s because both of my daughters took dance classes and there wasn't a single boy in any of their classes that they took. So I don't, I don't know why because it seems like things are so different these days, but they've kind of somewhat stayed the same in a mm. way with, um, the, with sports, I'd say, and, and gender roles. Yeah, that's too bad. I would love to sign up my kids for karate if they felt, you know, compelled. And if I had a boy, which I don't, I probably would encourage him to take some dance classes just because I love it. It seems like a good thing for girls to take just, you know, for as like a fun, like self-defense class too. You know, it's, I feel like it, it serves kind of an extra purpose of just making maybe girls be able to feel a little bit more confident, um, you know, as they get older and are, you know, walking around at night. And not just girls, like, like I, honestly, Anyone, yeah. I, I've got to say, like, uh, of the forms of regular exercise that I used to get in life, um, <laughs> karate was one of the ones that made me feel the most in touch with my body, the most confident about my body and what it could accomplish. Um, yeah, and, and, you know, like, I was taking karate during an age where I started to have a lot of self-confidence issues, and... Um, you know, in a sense, I liken a lot of the practice of it to like meditation and yoga and things like that, just in the sense that it's very much an activity that like grounds you in yourself and grounds you in the present moment and doesn't allow you to kind of zone off or like spiral out thinking about your anxieties or anything. Um, so yeah, like the, the whole like movie of it all aside, I would encourage anyone out there if they're interested in karate or if they have kids who are interested in it to definitely pursue it. All right, let's get onto the casting of the karate kid. So a lot of young actors were considered for the role of Daniel that, uh, went to Ralph Macchio. Um, they included Sean Penn, Tom Cruise, <laughs> John Cryer, Charlie Sheen, Robert Downey Jr., Nicolas Cage and Eric Stoltz. All of those are such different movies than the movie that it is already <laughs> just from casting. Yeah. Like totally different. Ralph Macchio won the part based off his performance as Johnny in The Outsiders. Ralph Macchio was also 22 goddamn years old filming this movie. Wow. He looks Talk 13. about like a twink power. <laughs> the twink power is just undeniable. 
now he's he's 60 and he looks so much younger. And yeah. now he looks 22. <laughs> he looks 25 or 30. I swear to God, I saw a recent <laughs> photo of him and I'm like, he, he, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, be happy for that baby face, man. Oh my God. Considered for the role of Johnny was Crispin Glover. <laughs> also a different movie. <laughs> <laughs> That's... I cannot picture it. I can, and it's very funny. Can can you picture can you picture Crispin Glover as the bad guy Johnny versus Sean Penn as Daniel? Like, can't. It's very wrong. Considered for the role of Allie was Helen Hunt and Demi Moore. Um, Elizabeth Shue was cast based partly on a Burger King commercial that became widely popular in the early 1980s. Oh. Uh, she also left Harvard to film the movie. Wow. Well, I guess that worked out for her. Wow. I guess so, yeah. Good choice, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Can you imagine, though, like being in Harvard and then being like, should I go film this karate movie? Should I Should I stop my education at Harvard? Dear Mr. Harvard, <laughs> sorry, but I have to go do a karate movie. And then she was right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, follow-up letter. Dear Mr. Harvard, I was right. <laughs> Pat Morita was born Noriyuki Morita. He's a Japanese-American. He was born in California in 1932. He developed spinal tuberculosis at age two and spent most of his childhood in the hospital until he was 11 years old. Upon undergoing spinal surgery at age 11 and relearning how to walk, he left the hospital and was immediately sent to a Japanese internment camp with his family, where they spent a year and a half there. Wow. I just want to make sure that we put proper respect on his name. Noriyuki Morita. I looked up pronunciations of it. Thank you. Thank you for <laughs> that. Because I felt a super deep reverence for him, even at the time, even not knowing his life story. That's amazing. Yeah, I didn't know a single thing about this person, besides the fact that he was an actor on Happy Days. That's the only other thing I knew of him. So looking up his history was really interesting. After they got out of the internment camp, the next few years were spent opening, closing, opening Chinese restaurants with his family. And yes, I said Chinese, <laughs> mm-hmm. even though he's Japanese. Mm-hmm. It, this was in Sacramento. Then he worked at the DMV. He worked at an aerospace firm like Aerojet and Lockheed. Eventually, he felt burnt out and he decided to try show business, you know, like you do. (laughs) (laughs) And so he did stand-up comedy and he eventually found success after moving to Los Angeles. He changed his name to Pat based on a memory of a priest who visited him in the hospital as a boy and said that if he ever converted to Catholicism, the priest would christen him as Patrick Aloysius Ignatius Xavier Noriyuki Morita. So that's why he's Pat Morita. He didn't go with that whole name, huh? (laughs) Maybe he did. He left out the Aloysius, I think. (laughs) Could see it on a poster. He needs a goddamn documentary. Like this is like he really does, or a biopic. Yeah, I was fascinated reading up on him that I didn't know that he didn't speak any Japanese. Like I don't think he ever learned Japanese. Oh, I didn't know that. I know that he was American, um, but I didn't know that. Speaking of documentaries, uh, you could watch More Than Miyagi, The Pat Morita Story. (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) If you would like. I will. (laughs) Ah, damn it. We try to have this podcast happen in a vacuum where we are unaware of anything that has happened after the year 2000. (laughs) Why are you Googling while we're we're podcasting? (laughs) To avoid all the angry mail that we would get if we didn't. (laughs) So much angry mail. So much. So guys, did you see Karate Kid when you were little? And what did you think of it then? Chelsea, would you like to go first? 
Yeah, I guess I'll go first since I'm the oldest, and I probably saw when all of you were in diapers, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was six years old when it came out, so I did not, of course, see it in the theater. But The Karate Kid was kind of always in the background of, I'd say, my life, (laughs) the life that I remember growing up. It just was one of those things where I don't have a specific memory of sitting down and watching The Karate Karate Kid for the first time. I think it was just something that everyone talked about maybe first and I heard about it and then it might have been playing on HBO one day and I turned it on and I liked it. In my life, I went through many different phases of why I liked The Karate Kid, starting off with just probably being like a nine or 10 year old kid and just really just kind of liking the movie for what it was. And that kind of evolved into like most girls my age, a crush on Ralph Macchio. I definitely thought he was attractive even though I guess when I when I started liking him I might have been 12 and he looked 13 mm-hmm. so that was okay. Um, and then just it was kind of part of my life and and what it meant to be an 80s kid. And now it's more nostalgic than anything. When I watch the movie The Karate Kid, it really just brings me back to my childhood and what 80s movies kind of were. I feel like this is, in a way, a quintessential 80s movie where it has the underdog. He likes this girl, so you got the romance thing going. But you also have the jerk that picks on him. And it's very much a signifier of what movies were during that decade that really I just love. And and every time I see something like this or Back to the Future or something like that, I get so nostalgic about that time. And that's pretty much what it was, the history of, of The Karate Kid and me. <laughs> <laughs> it's Interesting that you said that because my 80s movie, the movie that I'm nostalgic for for the 80s and have a connection to is Back to the Future. And that also has the underdog with the bully and he has a girlfriend and it's about his like struggle of like becoming okay with himself. Yeah. And kind of an old mentor figure too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that was very much an 80s thing. I know probably it still continues on that theme in movies these days, but it just was such a kind of generic blueprint for movies back then. And what really made a movie stand out from the others was what they did with it and how they took that blueprint and made it their own. And obviously the Karate Kid really did. It was very niche and and specific to something specific sport. So I think in a way it's for a lot of people these days, it's more nostalgic than anything. Is it a movie that you revisit very often um, when you're not podcasting about it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I don't like I don't own it or or you know seek it out but if for some reason someone were watching the karate kid I feel like I'd I'd pretty much stop everything and sit down <laughs> and watch it you know like you did with me exactly yeah like I was really excited when you said you hadn't seen it cuz then that was a reason to watch the karate kid so it is something that I want to revisit and actually I started watching um, The End again tonight, and my daughter Maddie, she was really against watching The Karate Kid when 
we did it, but she wanted to stay up. And I said, the only way you can stay up is if you sit and watch the last half hour of Karate Kid with me. And she liked it. So now I'm really excited. (laughs) I'm going to make her watch Karate Kid 2 with me soon. Aw, she liked it. That's nice. Yeah. No, it was great. It was great. It made me really happy. Aw, that's great. As I said, I did not see this growing up. It was just a blind spot. The first time I even laid eyes on it was I was living in Australia and I lived alone in a tiny, tiny, tiny closet of an apartment and I just had a TV. There was no smartphones then and I didn't have the internet. So it was literally like whatever's on television (laughs) and the Karate Kid was on and I still was only like half paying attention to it. (laughs) But that was the first time I saw like anything from the Karate Kid. Did they dub it into an Australian accent? (laughs) That would have been really funny. Wax on, wax off. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> Sounded a little more Kiwi. Yeah. <laughs> Go fuck yourself. <laughs> but like the first time I saw the whole thing was with Chelsea last year. Yeah, I don't know why it was a blind spot. I think it was just one of those things where I have mentioned before in the podcast that if you liked a movie, Chelsea, like then I felt like I couldn't like it. <laughs> I remember that. It was a little bit of of sibling rivalry. Yeah. Cinema was a zero-sum game for you. But was it rivalry? Or or I literally thought, well, if she likes it, I'm not going to like it. So I can't watch it because it's for older girls. But but what about Pulp Fiction, though? That was when it changed. But that was when I was 11. Okay. So anything before that, because I remember it was like, you wanted to see Big and I wanted to see Roger Rabbit. And then... When Big was on VHS, I felt like I couldn't see it because it was your movie. (laughs) You missed out. Well, I eventually saw Big, but the other movie that was like that was The Goonies. I never watched The Goonies when I was young because it was your movie. Oh, my God. Yeah. Okay. Now I've seen The Goonies, but... Well, yeah, no, I know, but that's like sacrilegious. Yeah. (laughs) I'm glad, Chelsea, that you were as befuddled by this apparent policy as we have all been. (laughs) This one in, one out movies policy i never look, understood the parameters to me either but i was a kid <laughs> well and look to be fair i'm an only child so i didn't know the rule book here yeah siblings are weird we we have our own Truly. little kind of like book of rules <laughs> that we make up as we go pretty much and that's the opposite of me and my sister because i feel like we usually had like one tv free for the kids to watch so it was like we always watched things together i think we rented movies and often probably you know rent like had to pick one together or something like that and had our favorite movies like the Brady Bunch and and stuff like that were movies that we would watch together. So very different. Later as a teenager, I would watch things on my own. But as younger kids, like we watched most stuff together. I think we watched some movies together, Chelsea. I just don't, I don't know what. (laughs) We definitely did, but they weren't they were kind of weird, random movies. Like, I remember we used to watch, like, Hug a Bunch together yeah. or something <laughs> like that. But you know what? You know, the the podcast I would have wanted you to be on was Coming to America, because that one we watched together. Oh, yeah. Of course, we watched that one together. I wonder if, like, it was also a generational thing. Like, I don't know. Like, I'm more, you know, Gen X, and you're kind of more millennial. And I, I don't know if that has anything to do with it, because... I know you watched other movies that came out in 1984, but I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I'll go into my karate kid story. <laughs> Chelsea, exactly like you were saying, I feel like Karate Kid was one of those movies and one of those like characters that was just part of the wallpaper. Like it was everywhere, it was omnipresent. I had cable growing up, so I know it was all over cable. I 
used to love going to mom and pop video rental shops before Blockbuster even existed and destroyed all of those. And I know that Karate Kid was like a mainstay of all of, especially of the mom and pop video rental places. They would have, you know, uh, whole shelves full of copies of Karate Kid 1 and 2 and eventually 3. I know that basically all the guys in my family, like all my cousins and stuff, loved that movie i'm pretty sure that i had at least one like home taped vhs of it but either way like you know i was born in 84 but i know i was watching the karate kid by like 89 or 90 like i absolutely know that i saw it at that age and i just very distinctly remember the character of mr miyagi i remembered even at the time i had the lessons of like respecting my elders and that kind of thing drilled into my head from a very young age. But even at that, there was something about the character of Mr. Miyagi that just commanded great respect and reverence. Yeah, there was something about the world of that movie, in particular about Mr. Miyagi and the way that he kind of grounded the world of that movie that made it feel real for me. And I definitely never got into any scrapes at school. I never was beaten up by kids from rival dojos. (laughs) I never had (laughs) that kind of excitement or drama in suburban New Orleans, but it was definitely a thing that got me personally interested in doing karate and a movie that just made a huge impression on me. And especially just that, that particular movie character, you know, and I'm sure that to whatever extent, you know, like we're supposed to identify with Ralph Macchio's character. And I definitely did identify with Daniel LaRusso, but I was more in love with Daniel LaRusso. <laughs> and Chelsea, like, who was it? Yeah, the, yeah, Chelsea. The phenomenon you describe is not limited to little girls alone. Yes, no, I, I meant, um, yes, of course. I just, I thought he was so cute, and I was like, maybe I could learn martial arts to protect him. <laughs> but yeah, I just, I, I loved that movie. It's weird because it didn't. I feel like it didn't influence like the rest of my life necessarily you know i didn't really keep up with martial arts and truly i had not rewatched karate kid since i was a child and i mean probably like seventh or eighth grade i think would have been the last time i saw it i don't think i ever saw it in high school and i definitely didn't watch it again as an adult i was kind of surprised that i hadn't revisited it more and yeah again it was just that the character of mr miyagi just really was very special to me over and above kind of how much the movie resonated with me if you had asked me before we started preparing for this podcast i would have said yes i've seen the karate kid then i watched the karate kid (laughs) and realized i have not seen the karate kid (gasps) (laughs) <laughs> oh, this oh is gosh. so phenomenal. Like half of our podcast had not seen this. I love it. Yeah, there have been a couple movies yeah. on the podcast that I thought I had seen until I watched it and then kind of realized <laughs> that none of this is really familiar to me. I know this movie was on cable TV, so I definitely like flipped channels and like saw like a moment here or there. I know I had at least seen like clips from the Miyagi, like wax on, wax off. You know, I was very familiar with like that as a quote in pop culture and who Miyagi was. You know, he's a very famous figure in pop culture, even if you have not seen this movie. I think a lot of people still know who 
who he is and what his character is kind of about. So I guess that had just seeped into me thinking that I had at least watched this movie once, but I don't think so because none of the stuff that isn't really, really well known in pop culture felt familiar at all. Not the character that Daniel is or any of the particular like locations, like nothing really looked familiar. I think I didn't see this movie. It's one of those things that's so well known in culture. It kind of feels familiar anyway. And I think the sequels were also probably on TV too. So maybe I saw uh, you know, moments from that and kind of assembled a whole like mega karate kid movie that I thought I'd seen. But but like we were kind of talking about is karate was such a big part of our culture growing up. It had really been like kind of adopted into American youth culture, especially with the Ninja Turtles. But even in the 80s before that, there was a big Asian influence in pop culture. A lot of 80s movies have this kind of subplot or a fascination with Asian culture, like even Die Hard, I was just watching, or Gremlins, Big Trouble in Little China. Like there's a lot of movies absolutely that dealt with this. And playing Nintendo as a kid, you're very aware that it was a Japanese company, even at like age, you know, five or six. Like that was just something that I knew about Nintendo and a lot of technology too. you know, TVs and stereos and VHS players. A lot of those were coming from Japanese companies at the time. So I feel like it kind of went in with all of that and just made me feel like I had seen a movie that I hadn't quite seen because I had seen a bunch of movies that it influenced. I think Ninja Turtles is the biggest example because it's so similar in the sense of a older sensei teaching life lessons to kind of hip teenagers. Obviously, that was at least like partially a ripoff of the Karate Kid. That character, especially like Splinter the Rat, is is very Miyagi. Like there's really not much of a difference. And there were movies like Three Ninjas in 1992. Um, right. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. And then the sequel, Three Ninjas Kickback. Very memorable sequel title. <laughs> and that one starred Victor Wong, who's kind of like the other Pat Morita as a wild old grandfatherly Asian character, who is also in a lot of movies that we watched as kids like Tremors. And- Wasn't he also doing Gremlins? Yeah. 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 So, yeah, I mean, my overall takeaway as I was watching this movie was just that, like, it's so... So much a part of culture that it feels like you've seen it even if you haven't seen it absolutely all right guys so we're all grown up now what did you think of the karate kid as an adult chelsea what did you think well, I think it's no surprise that I I still love it. I Every time I watch it, I almost forget some scenes. Like when I was watching it again most recently, I kind of forgot the scene where Daniel is practicing karate on the, the boat with Mr. Miyagi and he kind of like shakes it and makes him fall and then he cracks up. <laughs> I love that scene. And, and it's almost, it's weird. Like every time I see it, I just start laughing. For some reason, I just, I forget what, what happens next. I mean, I know what happens. He wins the tournament. But it's just one of those movies that you can just kind of watch again and again. It's like the Shawshank Redemption of the 80s or something like that. So I I give it a two two thumbs up still. (laughs) As somebody who never has no nostalgia for this movie, when you were like, we have to watch The Karate Kid, I think I thought it would be cheesier, maybe something pretty racist (laughs) 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 that wouldn't hold up in that respect like maybe cringy i guess what is the word what would you americans call it Mm, uh, cringe yes (laughs) yes cringy and racist because we've watched like john hughes movies that are total classics but still it's like a few you know scenes here or there are like (laughs) like that didn't work really don't (laughs) 
Don't hold up today. Yeah. Yeah. Especially <laughs> as like they pertain to Asian characters, like in 16 yes. Candles. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So I think my expectations were low. I thought it would be like fine, but I liked it. I was really charmed by Ralph Macchio. Do you have a crush on him now? Yes. <laughs> now that you've seen it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I 1000% I would have had a crush on him if I had seen him yeah. as a kid. He's so charming and natural, like right from the very beginning of the movie. I just, I, and I think that he set the tone for making this just feel different than what I think of 80s movies to be. Because a lot of these kinds of characters, like when I think of 80s besides Back to the Future, I think of John Hughes movies, basically. And those kids are a little bit too winky-winky, like knowledgeable about life, or or they're very stylized in a way. And I just felt like he felt like a real kid. And I was really caught off guard by that. And I really, really liked his friendship with Mr. Miyagi. I thought parts of it were just great. That didn't feel like it was like in an 80s movie, like the stereotype. Like I remember there's a pretty long take of them next to a lake with the sun going down and the car shining next to them. And it was just like a lovely shot. I don't know who the DP was, but like it was just a beautiful shot in this movie. And because it's the karate kid, like when people think of it, they might think of something a little bit cheesier and a little bit more over the top. Certainly a few scenes like that. But generally I thought it was a surprise. Yeah. Similarly to Becky, this is not the movie I was expecting it's the template for so many movies that I was expecting it to be more like those movies. (laughs) It's strange that a movie that's been ripped off a million times, especially in family-oriented films and a lot of sports movies, that it can still feel so fresh. And that's the word that keeps coming up for me as I'm describing different aspects like the story, the performances, the characters. Um, They all feel really fresh, which is not what I was expecting for a movie that has also been like copied to death, I think. Um, these characters have all kind of become archetypes that have been used a lot. A wise, like, gentle mentor, a street smart kid who's an outsider being bullied in a new school. Um, I'm not sure that this movie exactly invented those things, but I think it definitely crystallized the formula for them um, in that you can say, like, oh, this is a Miyagi type. And, you know, as a writer, like, you would know exactly what someone is, is pointing to for that. Um, Probably dozens of movies I saw as a kid in the 90s had elements of these exact characters and this formula, and most of them end up feeling pretty phony. So I was kind of just expecting this to be the same way. Um, But this isn't a movie where, like, Mr. Miyagi is a Mr. Miyagi type, because there was no Mr. Miyagi type. (laughs) So I was I was surprised how specific the characters were and how they had so much more to them than just being a gentle, wise mentor. Like, he is that, but he also has a lot of really specific things about his personality that I think get lost, like, the more times you kind of copy this formula. And same with the performances. It didn't feel like they were doing an impression of, you know, what we've seen, like, a Mr. Miyagi do. He's actually, like, playing the real person, which sounds like an obvious thing to do as an actor. But I think a lot of times in movies, especially ones that are kind of sports movies or family-oriented, they are more like acting like 
actors you've seen give these kinds of performances before and recycling a lot of tropes. They very rarely feel like spontaneous or original. And this did, like there are so many moments, especially between Ralph Macchio and Elizabeth Shue, where I just felt they were having a real conversation and reacting to each other, not like reading lines from a script, but that they felt like they were in the moment and like she's really laughing at his jokes and things like that. And his the jokes that he makes, they, they're kind of weird sometimes. Like he does a thing where he's hearing a voice and like speaking back to the voice, but like it feels like something you kind of came up with in the moment. It doesn't really feel like a scripted bit. Mm-hmm. Hi. Hey, Allie with an eye. How you doing? Good. Not too hungry today. No, not really. Yeah. Have some pie. I made it myself. Yeah. <laughs> so how do you like the valley so far? Well, it hasn't been dull. Is Newark dull? How'd you know I was from Newark? I asked. Oh, really? You sitting with anybody? Well, you, if it's okay. That was great to me. You want some milk? Yeah, thanks. Listen, um, I'm sorry about the soccer tryouts. Ah, those are the breaks, you know. Yeah, well, you remember that guy you had trouble with on the beach? Oh, yeah, King Karate. Yeah, it was my ex-boyfriend. Oh, that's good to know. What? What? Oh, yeah, you're right. You're right. I know. What are you doing? Oh, it's just this little voice. You know, it's telling me I gotta be some kind of a yo-yo to be talking to you right now. Um, that'll be two fifty. Oh, wait for both. Three seventy-five. Three seventy-five. Yeah, well, it doesn't matter anyway. Well, why is that? Because it's over. It's over. Wait, how over? Weeks. Weeks. One week. Five weeks. How many weeks is weeks? And so this is a movie that's like at least adjacent to sports movies, if not an actual sports movie. And those are rarely my favorite type of movies, for one, because I don't have that much interest in sports in general. But also because I think of all genres, they're one of the ones that's just like the most awash in cliche. And like, you know, the structure of them so well, like you can tell me like the premise of a sports movie, and I could probably tell you how it ends, you know, and like what the big beats are just because it's that kind of written in stone. And so I was really surprised at how this one feels like it's a story that's actually unfolding according to its own rules and that everything that happens is happening organically and not just because like it's following the beats of a script. I could not agree more. We all agree. Yeah, yeah. I feel oh like I, I feel compelled to be a contrarian and say that this is somehow awful, but I, I can't. I can't. Chelsea, you're a good luck charm. <laughs> yeah. Well, when is the last time this happened? Where all all three of you agree? When was Chris? <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> we liked the Muppets Christmas Carol. To, mm. to varying degrees. I seem to recall Becky hating all things Muppets and wanting to <laughs> yeah. set them all on fire. Personally. Becky's words were, I want to genocide the Muppets. What? Those furry <laughs> bastards need to burn? I don't know. That's just, that's just my transcript. But when we're all going back to like a, especially like an 80s movie and some of us haven't seen it, big comes to mind. Like, I feel like it's mm-hmm. hard to go to one of these kinds of movies fresh and not find a lot to critique in it if you don't have the nostalgia. I think that's perfectly put. And I felt lucky in a way that I personally hadn't seen this movie in at least 20 years because I did get what I think was the closest thing to a completely fresh view of it that I could have possibly gotten. There's a part of me that would argue that this falls under the, the umbrella of 80s cheese 
movies. It is cheesy in a way. It's a very contrived kind of plot like Chris talked about. There's some super cheesy music and some of the child actors are children acting, but it still works so well for me for the reasons y'all have each described. The characters are so specifically drawn in a way that would undermine any kind of like neatly easily pigeonholing them into any archetypes or stereotypes. Like there's and there's something about how good its cheesiness is that for me made it really difficult to watch it from a very critical perspective or at least to whatever extent I would have found reasons to criticize it. It was like the most minor things and overall I was just really, really taken in and charmed by it. This time especially, I really did love Ralph Macchio's character. I so appreciated that Daniel LaRusso is a poor ass kid with a single mother who has to move across the country to even try to find a job. There's a lot about this movie that does kind of engage with class and that centers on someone who's poor in a way that's really even kind of surprising among 80s movies, but is mostly unheard of now. And there's a way that it kind of engages with class a little bit, even with Daniel's relationship with Elizabeth Shue's character. Daniel's mom's car dies when she's driving Daniel to pick her up for a date. And you can like tell that Elizabeth Shue's parents look down on Daniel and don't see him as a suitable romantic prospect for her. So I found that really interesting. I I really loved their dynamic, like Daniel Daniel and Elizabeth Shue's character, Allie. I just call her Elizabeth Shue because I don't <laughs> even think they call her Allie that many times in the movie. They just call her Elizabeth <laughs> Shue in the movie. Well, and also Elizabeth Shue was born an adult woman named Elizabeth Shue. <laughs> There's just like... <laughs> She did not have to grow up. She was just Elizabeth Shue the whole time. But I really felt their kind of relationship and their dynamic with each other was super organic feeling. Like, I just felt like Daniel LaRusso was an awkward-ass kid, like, trying to appeal to this girl in the limited, random ways he knows how. And I also especially appreciated the dynamic between... Daniel LaRusso and Mr. Miyagi. Um, It's not just a stern, authoritarian, dictatorial kind of relationship. It's very much not just a friendship, it's the two of them are kind of teaching each other over the course of the movie how to be good friends. I really connected a lot more now to the origin of Mr. Miyagi and kind of his backstory, because I didn't know Pat Morita's own history, having been put in an internment camp, but watching the movie this time, there's a point where Mr. Miyagi talks about his backstory and says that he, Mr. Miyagi, had fought in World War II and came back and then was thrown into a Japanese internment camp. Yeah, can we talk about that scene? First of all, I feel like that scene probably got him his Oscar nomination. Yes. Yeah. It's such a... I'm so happy they put that in there, too. I thought it was so interesting because the whole time I'm just thinking, okay, he's Japanese, and for some reason he's an American now. But he's actually Japanese-American. He was born in America, like Pat Marina in real life. And I thought it was so interesting that he fought in World War II against the Germans, which is also, you know, against Japan. Right. And I found that so interesting as, like, part of his character. And the fact that he has the Congressional Medal of Honor in his box, which is the highest decorated honor you can get that Congress has to vote on, That's how celebrated he was. Fast American born Miyagi waiting to be born. Hey, drink, drink. Sergeant Miyagi. Yes, sir. 
Sajı Miyagi report to kill many Jerry Germans, ha? Sajı Miyagi, yes, ha? Regret to inform wife, son, complication at birth, sa. Complication, but no doctor can. And a free home of brain. Oh, don't you come. Oh, don't you come. And it was handled so poetically and so non-flippantly that it shocked me. That scene I just thought was so touching, but just really the overall story itself was so touching because Mr. Miyagi's character is clearly very much a soul who's experienced so much pain and hurt that almost none of us could really understand or directly relate to. Oh yeah, didn't, is it his pregnant wife died or his kid died? He mentions it really quickly, but she dies in childbirth. That's and, it. And obviously the, the infant the, his son, I was it as I think it was a boy, right? Who dies too. So it was so interesting because clearly that's why he feels like this connection to Daniel. Like that's giving him background. He's not just some nice old man. Yeah. Like he's getting something out of this relationship too because of what, you know, he never had that son to teach. And he also, in the context of their relationship between just the, th- the two of them, Daniel LaRusso is the person who makes it possible for Mr. Miyagi to feel safe being vulnerable vulnerable and opening up to this kid who just keeps showing up in his life because you can tell like the way that the other people in their apartment building like talk about him like he's very much seen by a lot of people as like the crazy old man who just keeps to himself again it's just like chris said countless movies have ripped this off but none of them get right what this specific movie gets right just in making these characters emotionally grounded you know in a way that then kind of carries you through the plot and chelsea like you were saying like you know there's a lot in the kind of broad strokes about this movie that i absolutely remembered even after 20 years or so of not seeing it but so much of it was a real surprise and discovery and it was equally just delightful about it that I hadn't remembered so much of kind of like the business of particular scenes and was just able to really be carried on this trip with them. I was beyond pleasantly surprised with this. I loved it. I think it's so nice too what what sets this movie apart from other very well-known 80s movies like you were saying John Hughes is that Not only is Mr. Miyagi not a quote-unquote joke or a punchline in this movie, but he's also given this backstory where we really do care about him as as a character and really connect with him. And I think that for someone who's a minority, that's something that was sort of unique during that period. So I and I that really resonated, I think, with a lot of people originally watching this. Yeah, when did 16 Candles come out? Because that has like the worst Asian stereotypes ever in that movie. Wasn't that before this? Uh, Same year, 84. Oh, same Same year. year. Oh, boy. Yeah. Yeah, he's just given, you know, it could be described as like, oh, he only exists to help a white kid. But really, he's like a fully developed character. He gets something out of it. Like his, uh, he fulfills his desire to be a father. Like their relationship is is real and very believable. I just really want to call out also that I really appreciate that they just simplified how they meet is that he's just the super. Because I feel like another movie would be like, there's some weird, very, like, weird meat cute between them. (laughs) I don't know. Like, I just 
feel like that was a moment that could have been like just so over the top and dumb. And yet it was like so simple. It's like, just make him the super of the building that he moves into. Hey, you the maintenance man. Hey. Yeah, we're the new people in apartment 20. Yeah, faucet's really leaking there. Well, can you come fix it? Hey. Well, can I tell my mom when? When what? When are you gonna fix the faucet? After. After what? After, after. That was one of the things in Back to the Future that like was hard to like get over was just like why are these two like best friends <laughs> like it just it makes sense in this movie you know and this is obviously a different kind of movie but yeah I also appreciated yeah there's no like Asian jokes in this movie or you know like very opposite of Sixteen Candles there's no like laughing at at his expense or like making him like culturally like other you know where he doesn't understand something or someone doesn't understand him like that just doesn't need to be a part of this movie and it isn't the only time anything close to that happens is from the bad guys of the movie do they make fun of Miyagi they do and there's a racial slur used at at least one point is that the scene where he he hits the the tops of the beer bottles off and they they say like a slur or something before that happens. I think so. I think that's it. Wow. Oh, I think they also just they say something else. I think that I understood to be a slur yeah. too. I looked up if you could actually chop the top off of two beer bottles without them moving, and there's one video on YouTube of somebody doing it. So I don't know. Is it magic or did they do it? I don't know. <laughs> and going along with Miyagi not being a cliche and being fully developed is I also think. Like, just as important as the way that Daniel is not, especially that he's not a son of a bitch, which I feel like (laughs) so many of these types of characters ended up kind of being that way with like, especially in 90s movies with this like very 90s attitude. I watched about 15 minutes of The Next Karate Kid uh, with Hilary Swank, which was in the 90s. Um, And in it, she plays like an orphan who's just like completely like mean to her grandma and to Mr. Miyagi in the opening. Like every line is like a snotty little line and just very aggressive. And it's like, okay, she's an orphan. Like you, you, like that's an excuse to, I guess, feel bad for her, but it's just like, it's drumming up this kind of false conflict where the conflict is that she's like has attitude and that's it. And in this movie, like he's kind of a similar type of character as like, he does get upset with his mom that like he's, you know, had to come out here and he gets kind of irritated with Mr. Miyagi a couple of times, but he's not generally like rude to him or to his mom. Like it's, there's a lot of versions of this movie where I think he would just be kind of like, like saying mean things to his mom the whole time. Cause he's upset just a he, brat. Yeah. That he, he's upset that he has to be there, but instead he's actually like, he has a great relationship and he's open and like earnest and he wants to learn from Miyagi. He's not, it's not a situation where he has to be there. Um, and I think that just goes a long way for the audience of also wanting to, like, we're more curious about Miyagi. We're not, you know, caught up in this thing where he just doesn't want to be there. And that's like kind of a flat conflict is like, he actually does want to be there. And when he gets upset, it's like, it's understandable because he's like, why are you asking me to do all these chores? That's what we're kind of wondering at this point too. So when, when he starts showing an attitude, it feels natural rather than it's just like, that's his character tick. 
Going back to his relationship with his mom, I just, I loved how his mom was portrayed. Very loving. They have a good relationship. Like, it's just, it, again, it could have been so dumb where in a lesser movie, it could have been that the mom is a conflict, but in this one, they're mm-hmm. actually like pretty on the same page. And I just really appreciated that. I appreciate any movie where the mom isn't super lame. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Guess what? What? I'm going to be trained as a manager. Isn't that great? Yeah. They got this program. It's two nights a week. As soon as a spot opens up, you're in. And the benefits, I could never get them working in computers. They pay for everything. It's great, huh? What's the matter, Daniel? Nothing. Hey, remember when you went to the country for the summer and you hated it because you had no friends? What happened? I got poison ivy. You met Kevin and Kenny, who became your best friends in the whole world. You gotta give it a try. Hey, I know it's hard, but we're not quitters, are we? Guess not. What's with the uh, karate place? No, it sucks. Good, because we probably couldn't afford it anyway. And the girl situation? It's okay. Just okay? To me, it looks like the whole world turned blonde. <laughs> you got shy at anybody? Oh, cute. No, not cute. She's, uh, I mean, she's beyond cute. But she's blonde, though, right? Yeah, she's got blonde hair. Lucia, let's go. Here they come. Is, no. she, uh, is she as pretty as Judy? Oh, my, she buries Judy in a second. She buries Judy? Uh, Listen, you'll tell me about it later. I love you. Careful how you ride home. Yeah, I mean, she so easily could have been a nag or a worrier. And instead, Mm -hmm. they feel like friends, you know, that, you know, obviously she has some authority. But for the most part, like the scene where they are sitting and chatting by the window and you can kind of see the bullies outside making a plan. But just like she's so excited that he's met a girl and met a blonde girl. And I just love like how (laughs) into California she is in this really like she's a goofy kind of mom, but she's also like a lot of fun and has a little Lorraine Bracco in her, which I always appreciate. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, did she move from New Jersey to California for a waitressing job? No. So this is, as I was rewatching it, it gets confusing. (laughs) So she moved to California for an actual job, like a desk job. And I think it was engineering or something. I don't know, like something where I believe she had to be like, you know, smart, like like went to college, has a Mm -hmm. degree, all that stuff. But then there's this scene in the restaurant as I rewatched it this time and I was confused and I was like, oh, I never thought about this. She says something about being a manager and it makes it seem like she's going to be the manager of the restaurant. So I actually Googled what is Daniel LaRusso's mom's job? <laughs> <laughs> and I guess there was either Reddit or something like one of those sites came up. I believe there was a Reddit thread that talked about it and it's unclear. <laughs> that scene is unclear clear where it makes it seem like she's possibly quitting her established job to to be a manager at the restaurant. What? 
Yes. But then other people thought that she meant that she was just going to be a manager at her at her job. But it sounded like she worked at the restaurant because don't they like call her and she's like, I got to go or something? Yeah, that's what's weird. It's, it, but I, I guess I took that as maybe she was out with co-workers or something like that. It, that's one of the things in The Karate Kid, I guess, that I have a criticism about. <laughs> it sounds like a scene is missing that they cut. Yeah, I bet that's it. I bet that it wouldn't was just surprise a, me. Yeah. Also, fun fact: there is a scene for scene rough draft of the Karate Kid that Avildsen shot on like VHS camcorders with all like it's all the kid actors at Miyagi as well. Like I think it's the whole cast, but like they did a lot of rehearsals that were filmed for this. So I'd be curious as to whether like there is an maybe an extra scene in there that's more specific about his mom's professional habits. <laughs> But I also think it's testament to how much I enjoyed this movie that I literally didn't notice that at all. <laughs> yeah, it's not a big deal. I think that's why I forgot about it or I just didn't care in the past. Just this time, maybe it's the first time I've watched it and I, I had read it at, at my disposal, but <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. I, <laughs> I like how we're introduced to those characters, too, like through their Jersey accents. Like there's a lot of voiceover on their road trip yeah. before we ever actually see their faces. And it's just like, whoa, these people are very much from New Jersey. They are very Jersey. Also, I say this every movie that anyone drives any amount of distance, <laughs> but this movie made me miss road trips. <laughs> I totally had forgotten that the movie begins with their move. And again, I just think that's kind of perfectly done because it very neatly dramatizes the fact that they're being separated from the lives that they had before and that this is very much like turning over a completely new leaf for both of them. Like all of y'all, I, I loved his relationship with his mom as well. I do think that this takes her less for granted than most of the movies that ripped this off do. I just wanted to mention, because this is the director of Rocky, which was a Best Picture winning movie, I had totally forgotten before we started watching it that it was the same director, but it really does have that feel to it where you can tell it was directed with some intent in the performances and just the locations. Like all of the locations feel really lived in, in a way that I think most kid or teen oriented films, especially like the ones that would like later kind of rip this movie off, just don't like the school doesn't feel real, you know, it, it, or the apartment building, you know, like we, we talked about how class is important. And there's all these like little textural details about the car that doesn't start and things like that. But I just was really impressed with a few of like the camera moves, like there is that conversation between Daniel and his mom, and you see the bullies in the background, and you see them formulating a plan, and it's all done without calling attention to itself mm -hmm. there's a moment where Miyagi is overhearing Daniel and his mom I think talking and it just kind of like pans over to him so you realize like later that like he's overheard this and that's why he's like stepping in to help Daniel this movie is just like much better directed than most sports movies and most <laughs> family oriented films so like Becky said earlier like she was expecting it to be more of a cheesy movie so was I like more of a kids movie and this is like in a movie that's okay for kids to watch and obviously a lot of kids do and and loved it but it never panders and doesn't have that kind of kitty humor it's not really pitched toward kids it's pitched at an adult level that just kind of happens to be family friendly this movie also makes me miss arcades <laughs> um can we talk about how mr miyagi beats up kids and gives a minor alcohol hell yes <laughs> 
<laughs> that was okay in the 80s. <laughs> this should happen more often now. <laughs> it was fine. It was a different time. <laughs> Timeless life lessons, rites of passage, beating up children. They were asking for it. Honestly, they were. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a testament to this movie that I like. I didn't even think really about the age difference, you know, during that scene. I was just sort of like, ah, good for you, Mr. Miyagi. Beat those children up. <laughs> good for you. I also just want to talk about the silly moments. There's so, so many, like, just them in skeleton costumes for the Halloween dance. The shower costume. Just, where the he, shower. Yeah, where he dresses costume. as the shower. I thought that <laughs> was fantastic. Costume. I had totally Lots forgotten of silliness. that. When I love that that was Miyagi's idea, too, is that, like, he's not just this sort of, like, grizzled old man. He also has, like, a really sharp sense of humor. Yeah. And, like, there's a moment when the, the fly-catching scene with the chopsticks and, like, Daniel gets it after like four tries and Miyagi's been trying his whole life and he gets really huffy you know it's not like he doesn't like use it as a <laughs> life that. lesson he's just like yeah. oh I'm gonna go sulk now <laughs> 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 Miyagi wouldn't fly swatter be easier man who catch fly with chopstick accomplish anything you ever catch one? Not yet. Can I try? <laughs> if wish. I had forgotten that the twist of that scene is really that Mr. Miyagi's never actually successfully done it. <laughs> and Daniel LaRusso, his first time really trying it a couple times, does it. <laughs> it's funny you say that, that there's some things that just transcend this movie that people kept doing throughout, you know, the 80s and after. Because I'm remembering as we're talking about it that I think one of the first things I remember about this movie was all the boys in my class doing um, the crane the crane kick in oh, class. Oh, yes. yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I also love in the end how Miyagi and Ali team up for a second to steal the black belt so that Daniel can pass himself off as a black belt yeah. mm -hmm. and it's another way in which like Miyagi even though he's like sort of the moral example in this movie like teaching Daniel like really important life lessons is not like above beating up children or stealing a black belt <laughs> so I kind of like that he has a mischievous side too well and he's got a code but he's not mindlessly obsessed with following tradition or with following other people's bullshit made up codes you know, and like that's a thing in the context of the story that plays out in his opposition to Cobra Kai, that rival dojo, and the way that they teach karate from the perspective of wanting to inflict violence, you know, and wanting to deliberately hurt people and not have mercy when Miyagi's whole personal code is really about only using it defensively and really hating fighting and not wanting to fight. 
Yeah, and I, th- I thought it was interesting if there's like kind of one lesson in this movie that I feel like comes out, it's the one that he says, there's no bad students, there's only bad teachers, which I think is really like kind of what the movie's about because Miyagi obviously is a good teacher and the other guy that runs the dojo is obviously a very bad teacher and he ends up being more sadistic than the bullies in the movie. Mm-hmm. I hear you jumped some of my students last night. Afraid the facts mixed up. You calling Mr. Lawrence a liar? No call no one nothing. What are you here for, old man? Come ask leave boy alone. What's the matter? The boy can't take care of his own problems? One to one problem, yes. Five to one problem. Too much ask anyone. Is that what's bothering you? The odds? Well, we can fix that. You like matching Mr. Lawrence? Yes, Sensei! Uh, no more fighting. This is a karate dojo, not a knitting class. You don't come in my dojo and drop a challenge and leave, old man. Now, you get your boy on the matter, you and I will have a major problem. Too much advantage. Your dojo. Name a place. Tournament. <laughs> you got real nerve, old man. Real nerve. But I think we can accommodate you. Can't we, Mr. Lawrence? Yes, Sensei. Fall in. He's the one that's kind of driving them. And if I have a criticism of the movie, it's probably that character. And and the performance is also, I feel like, a little bit like a Steven Seagal movie villain kind of thing. (laughs) Yeah. Wait, so you're saying that's a downside? (laughs) It felt like he belonged in, like, Roadhouse or something like that, which is a very fun thing, but that's not what this movie is. True. And I wish there was a little bit more explanation of why he wants to pick on this one kid and this one old man. Basically, like, it's just not, it's not really clear why he would take this so personally when he clearly has his, like, thriving karate school business and has a bunch of students that worship him. It's like, it doesn't seem like it's really worth his time to, you know, make a bet with this guy that is going to have this big showdown at the end. What did you guys think of the competition scene at the end? I was surprised at how kind of harrowing it was and that it really did feel like the end of Rocky or a boxer movie where this isn't the kind of movie where I was expecting like the main character to really be in pain in the end of it. And it really goes there. And it's hard because Ralph Macchio is so likable and does feel like such a young kid that to see him like really suffering and then having to like kind of swallow that pain and go through with it anyways, like it was a a lot more visceral than I was expecting from a movie that, you know, when it started, I thought was just going to be kind of like a kid's movie. Absolutely. And I mean, like, he gets injured initially, like, very early on in the competition. And then the head of the other dojo, like, instructs the guy to sweep the leg and, like, hurt him even more and go for that spot that's already hurt. I did not remember offhand if Daniel LaRusso won that competition or not. I didn't remember just because it had been so long. The suspense of that, I thought, was extremely well done. Can I ask why it would be bad for him to sweep the leg just because he knows he's hurt? Yeah. I mean, wouldn't you do that to win? No, it's poor sportsmanship. Yes. Okay. I'm an evil person, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) What are your senses? Turn. Kneel. Johnny, you're a creeper! Sweep the leg. You have a problem with that? No sensei. No mercy. 
And I really love how they have the bad high school student. I forgot what his name is now. Johnny. Johnny. Yeah, I like I like how they have him be actually reluctant to do it. Yes. And at the end, congratulate him on being like a good opponent. And, you know, it's he's not like a villain to the end. He ends up like showing that he has some compassion and, you know, kind of coming around, which is not something, again, you also see from a lot of these kinds of films is that kind of depth in a character that's supposed to be like the bad guy. Yeah, I think the the end is is very suspenseful in a in a surprising kind of way because as you're watching it, you kind of you really do think Daniel will win, but as it's going on, you know, especially when he gets hurt and he's back, um, you know, in the in the locker room, it just seems like it may not go that way. And I and and every time I kind of, I mean, I know what's going to happen, but but I'm just surprised at how how much of a suspense there is there. And then when Mr. Miyagi tells Daniel to close his eyes and he clasps his hands together in tune with the beat of the music, mm-hmm. it's like, okay, okay, now we're going to go somewhere different. So I think that whole last scene is set up really great. I really loved that Mr. Miyagi gave Daniel LaRusso a car because to a teenage kid, that means everything. That means freedom. That means life. That means discovery. That means adventure. And in particular, in his case, you know, the only car that he's had access to is his mom car, mom's car that constantly breaks down all the time. Wait. I, I don't. Oh, I'm just scared. You know, the tournament and everything. Just... You remember lesson about the balance? Yeah. A lesson not just karate only. Lesson for whole life. Whole life have a balance. Everything be better. Understand? <laughs> yeah, I understand. Oh, wow. You're the best friend I ever had. Are you pretty okay, too? Go. Go. Go find the balance. And so I just felt like that was a genuinely very, very sweet moment. And the conversation that I that they have together, you know, where Daniel tells him, you're my best friend I've ever had. And Mr. Miyagi says, you, you're pretty okay, too. <laughs> I just loved as a comedic moment, but just as a very touching relationship between two males <laughs> that, that doesn't often get represented in cinema, especially in this kind of form. Well, I didn't have a car growing up. I know Chelsea didn't either, so. (laughs) Well, did either of y'all have the chance to date Elizabeth Shue? I think not. You need to get yourself a sugar sensei for that. (laughs) Sugar sensei. (laughs) Sensei is sweet on you. (laughs) Sugar sensei is a good, like, screen name. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like a weed strain. I also really did like that birthday scene too and found it very um, genuine and surprisingly touching. Yeah. 
And I also wanted to just touch on Elizabeth Shue again, just because like the mom, she's a character that easily could have just been super generic. It's either Elizabeth Shue or the other actress. One of them replaces each other in Back to the Future, but like isn't like knocked unconscious for an entire movie just so that they don't have right. to have a female <laughs> character. And so it's not like she has a ton of like really interesting things to do in this movie necessarily, but she always just feels believable. And they have the stuff with her parents that I thought was really interesting. Like when her ex-boyfriend embarrasses Daniel at their like kind country club or wherever they are she hits him because he's kind of like assaulted her like he's forcing her to kiss him and and they ask him if he's okay instead of you know asking their daughter like oh what happened there like what you know so i just thought there is a little bit of a shade to her character and that that speaks to the like the class differences but also just like makes her a more interesting character than a lot of other movies like this have the girlfriend character be so there were two sequels to The Karate Kid and three separate reboots. <laughs> there was the next Karate Kid with a pre-Oscar winning Hilary Swank, The Karate Kid in 2010 with Jaden Smith, and Cobra Kai, a series on YouTube Red starring Ralph Macchio and William Zabka reprising the roles. So Chelsea, do you watch Cobra Kai? I watched seasons one and two. Season one was great. It's a new kind of modern version, but... It, it really honors the, especially the original Karate Kid and those characters. Um, do you know anything about it or, or I just what know they're the older, is? right? And I know nothing. Yeah. So they're older and through some means of their kids, they end up meeting each other again and, and the whole rivalry starts up again, but they have a rivalry going between their children as well, I think. And it's just, it's really great. Personally, I thought season two wasn't as good. And then I stopped watching it after that. But I would recommend for sure season one. And it's it's really good for teens today as well. But it's it's nothing compared to what The Karate Kid was. It's just kind of a fun, silly show. So there also was a 1989 animated Karate Kid series. <laughs> I have Did no idea. Know that. Yeah, I didn't watch any of it. Uh, I actually watched like the the theme. You know, I, I don't think it compares. <laughs> There's a Karate Kid Broadway musical in development right now, as well oh, as boy. another Karate Kid film oh, on no. deck for 2023. <laughs> oh. I did see the Karate Kid movie with Jaden Smith. Oh, you did? Yes, I had to... <laughs> It wasn't by choice. I was, I was, uh, <laughs> I was reviewing it. Kidnapped. <laughs> I was reviewing it for when I did when I wrote movie reviews. I I had to review that movie, and it wasn't bad. If if you just take it on its own, it was entertaining. But again, it's nothing. It's not. You know, no one cares about it now. It was a blip. But it, I think I gave it like two and a half stars or something like that. So it wasn't awful. Generous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I have a just a final question. Why is this movie franchise so popular? Like, what is it about this story that there's been this many reboots? I think it's because it set the template so well that it's copied so often that people think there's something that mm. is, like, worth going back to. But it's actually just the quality of the movie that makes it worth going back to. I don't think there's anything about 
a story about a karate kid that really warrants all this <laughs> attention. It's just that it it was really d- well done. And, and I wish that the lesson that they learned would be like, oh, we should pay this much attention to the story and the characters and make them feel, you know, fresh and organic rather than it's just never like, that oh, lesson yeah. that they learned. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's do that karate kid thing again. Only let's make it uh, you know, faker and, and worse. <laughs> I would agree with, all of what you just said, Chris. I would also say that, like I was kind of arguing earlier, I think that this story and this movie in particular was an entry point in American culture normalizing karate as a thing that Americans do, rather than something only a super athlete could possibly accomplish, whether that's a Bruce Lee or a Jean-Claude Van Damme, that it was something that even old Mr. Miyagi can do, but also that an awkward kid could learn to use to defend themselves successfully against, you know, school bullies or like whatever threat of life it was. And I also think, you know, relevant to Chris's question up top in the episode, I think that people want mentor figures. I think that we want to find those people in our lives or who we can encounter at some point in our lives who, even if they don't have all the answers, even if they don't have like a skeleton key that unlocks everything. People who've gone through experiences and have clearly learned from and grown from them and people who can impart wisdom to us, but who aren't unreachable, distant gods or supernatural deities or anything kind of mythic, you know, like we want those human figures who can help us figure out, you know, like what might lie down the path further down the path than we've gotten. And I think, especially in America, there are very few of those stories because we often like our stories with superheroes who were fully formed, who seemingly sprang out of nothing, who never really had anything to learn, who never really had any requirement to grow in order to acquire their strength and their powers. We culturally, a lot of times, we shy away from that kind of vulnerability or any kind of ignorance. But I think part of the staying power of this movie in particular is that it's so much an American story. It's so much a story about working class people just trying to get by and helping each other. And it's a story about mentorship. And I just think there are a lot of things in that that certainly aren't part of blockbuster American cinema, but really aren't often a part of, you know, what we view now as like independent cinema either. But I think that they're very just deeply human things that we connect to. Chelsea, any final thoughts? I think every once in a while, a movie comes along that really resonates with the public for whatever reason, and it just has that staying power. And I think that's what The Karate Kid is. It's one of those movies that that it needs to be made really well, needs to be directed really well. Everything came together with the actors, and it hit theaters and American culture at just the right time. It's, yeah, like it's, lightning in a bottle. Yes. And it's just a perfect storm of something that really made people, you know, love it. There aren't that many movies like that. But when there are, they kind of just are part of the American culture and and, and they just keep going on. And, and obviously now... It, 
things are being remade, I think, in general. So I'm not surprised that they made Cobra Kai because there's just all these remakes now. But yeah, I think it just really hit a note with people. It's just a great movie. Well, thank you for showing it to me. You're welcome. Thank you for watching it with me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad that I wasn't like rolling my eyes and being like, ugh. I honestly thought you wouldn't like it. And I think I remember we talked a lot during it, at least during that first viewing. So I was like, oh, she hates it. (laughs) So no, I remember us talking through it. Well, we don't get to see each other in person that often. I know, but I remember thinking, hey, shh, (laughs) we're trying to watch the movie. (laughs) Okay, we've learned a lot from this. One, Becky never stops talking when she watches movies with her sister, apparently. So I was surprised when it ended and you said, I liked it. (laughs) I said, really? (laughs) And that's all the flies we have chopsticks for on this episode of When We Were Young. On our next episode... Since Karate Kid is the ultimate movie about life lessons, we are going to interview an expert on life lessons found in 80s movies. Chris Clues, author of the new book, Raised on the 80s. We had a really great conversation that we think you will enjoy almost as much as we enjoyed having it. And I uh, didn't take part in that conversation because both my kids were screaming (laughs) to take care of that. We thank you for not trying to make that work. (laughs) We are going to have the all-child screaming episode of When We Were Young at some future date, but not quite yet. Can I also not be part of that one? (laughs) (laughs) Nope, you have to be there. The When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. If you've enjoyed this, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else you get your podcast product. You can follow us on all the socials and rate and review us five stars so more people see the show. I have been Seth. I'm Chelsea. I'm Becky. And I'm pretty okay, too. Try to be best, cause you're only a man, and a man's got to learn to take it. Try to believe, though.